And well, the song said that we're trusting in your words, in his word, we're trusting in his cross, and that's what we're going to look to right now. So do open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 20, and Sheena is very kindly going to read that out to us. Thank you, Sheena. Matthew 7, 1 to 20. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet. Then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, give, give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the, narrow, small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few will find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's by their fruit you will recognize them. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sheena. I want to invite Phil. He's going to come and explain more about the passage. Let's pray as he comes to do that. Father, we thank you so much for your words. We thank you for these words of the Lord Jesus. We pray now for Phil that you'd strengthen him and that you would, uh, through his explanation of your words, really bless us and challenge us and encourage us. Lord, that we might be walking more deeply and closely with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Dan's already said um, this morning, truth is something that is quite unbelievable. Uh, If you'd said to me uh, four years ago, after that tragic game with Iceland, that England were going to win a quarterfinal 4-0, having never conceded a goal in a European uh, final, I would not have believed you. You would have been pulling my leg. Truth is quite unbelievable sometimes. And it poses our culture. And this is is the thing that our, our passage talks about. The truth poses our culture as something with, with real confusion. Because when we look at our culture, at how we communicate the truth to others, not just, not, 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 ne- not truth about football, but truth about right and wrong, truth about good and evil, then actually, when we look at our culture, what we realize is we need these verses that we're looking at this morning. 
Why is that? Because the truth about right and wrong, the truth about good and evil, is unpopular in our culture for two reasons. The first reason is we believe that everybody has the right to express the truth as we individually see it. So we don't believe in an absolute truth about right and wrong or good and evil. And to say that there is one absolute, absolute truth is to deny individuality. That's what we, the technical term for that is relativism. It argues that truth is relative. Your right can be my wrong and my wrong can be your right. It's up to the individual. The problem with that, though, is that the whole premise is based on the absolute truth that there is no absolute truth. It undermines itself. You get the kind of irony of that. And the reason why we're crying out for truth is our culture has embraced that, but we need truth. We need something that shapes us and defines us. We need something to give us conviction, something that tells us who we are. We need truth. But our culture denies truth. The second reason why truth in our culture is unpopular is because our culture doesn't like to be offended. Have you noticed that? So we find ourselves trapped between the need for truth and our cultural hatred of offense, and it's confusing. For example, you can look at Raheem Sterling on a football pitch, and two weeks ago, culturally, we were looking at him and saying, that man is rubbish. That man is the worst thing that has happened to the English football team since we first thought of a square football. That man shouldn't be playing tiddlywinks, let alone football. We could rip him apart and destroy who he is as a player. And that's really fine. We're totally entitled to do that. And and you've got to understand, as a football player, that's all he is. As he sits down at breakfast, all he can say is, I am a football player, and I eat this breakfast as someone who needs this food to give me the energy to kick a football well on a football pitch. All I am is football. And you you tell everybody that he is rubbish at that. You destroy who he is. But our culture says that's allowed. Have you noticed that? But talk about his character. It gets a bit worse. Talk about his color. And you are totally allowed, totally not allowed to do that. On the one hand, you're allowed to destroy him as a person. On the other, you can't touch him. What's truth? What's right and wrong? What we say is so confusing. Where we draw the lines is so random in our culture. And the growing problem is this. Our hearts long for truth. Yet our culture hates offense. The truth is by nature offensive. But we hate it. And that's why we need Jesus' teaching here. He teaches us to balance the absolute truth, the truth as God defines it, by teaching us what it is to share that truth in love. We need truth. Our culture doesn't know what truth is. 
The truth is offensive. But Jesus says, okay, here's the truth. We need to share it in love. And that's why he tells these, these parables here. Be sen- and, and the first thing he says is be sensitive about sharing the truth in love. Be sensitive about sharing the truth in love. When you look at those first six verses of chapter 7 and begin to dig a little bit deeper, Jesus builds his teaching on comedy. For example, in verse 1, he says, don't judge. And yet in verse 6, he says, uh, he's happy to call people pigs and dogs. Have you noticed that? Don't, don't judge, you dog basically is what Jesus says. It's a, there's a comical picture as well um, of, of a man with a massive two-by-four plank in his eye trying to deal with the speck of dust in another man's eye. It's comedy. It's, it's there to, to really unpick our prejudices and, and the way we approach truth and lies and our knowledge about God. But as you read these verses, they encourage us to ask the question, what is Jesus trying to do here with these, picture, these comedy pictures? So what's his point about judging? Is he getting at me? Which of these people am I? Am I the bloke needing help or the bloke trying to help? Am I the dog? Am I the pig? Where do I fit into all these pictures and parables? Who am I? That's what Jesus wants us to start asking. That's why he uses comedy, because actually comedy in this context actually gives us enough of something to laugh at that we realize, I'm just beginning to laugh at myself. And, and it's opened my eyes to what I'm really like. So let's look at verse 1 and 2. Do not judge, says Jesus, or you too will be judged. In the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus begins this section with a warning that judgment can backfire. It's interesting. In the original Greek, chapter 7 begins with a threefold repeat of the word judged by a threefold repeat of the word measured. So it kind of goes, basically, you just got to you know, bear with me. It basically goes judged, 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 measured, measured, measured. And the warning is that if our natural instinct is to judge, then most likely that attitude will be returned to us one day. Or even God will use those standards that we judge by to, uh, to, to judge us. And it's important to realize that when Jesus talks about judgment, he's not forbidding evaluation. That's really important in our culture. It really is. Because, if we, because we can easily confuse discernment with judgmentalism. Jesus is not saying here, don't be, don't be discerning. He's not saying, don't tell people they're right or wrong, or that they're living wrongly or badly. Jesus is not saying we should water down the gospel or avoid telling people God is coming to punish evil and condemn sinners. What he is saying is, don't evaluate others with the intention of bringing them down. He is saying, tell the truth, but do it with a humility and love with the intention to build them up. But the question is, how do you do that? How do you evaluate without judgmentalism? Help without condemning? How do we tell the truth in love? And that's where verses 3 to 5 are really helpful. Let's read them together. 
Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your, your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's a comical picture, isn't it? It's a scenario of someone who needs help. And in those days, you didn't have mirrors, so you couldn't just kind of you know, go to the mirror and have a look. You needed someone else uh, if you had a speck in your eye. Someone else needed to deal with it. You need help. But it's also a picture of someone struggling with spiritual problems, with perhaps a besetting sin or, or spiritual indiscipline that needs someone else's accountability and help. So just like the bloke stuck with a speck in his eye, we all need help. We all have spiritual struggles. We are all in desperate need of someone to help us spiritually. We need people to tell the truth about God. We need people to talk to us and tell us about our sin and our flaws. And yet here's the beauty of the picture. That just as you don't get... I'm going to get my pen knife out. I've got one of these kind of handy little... You don't get your little pen knife out and start digging around in someone's eye for a piece of dust, a little speck of dust. In the same way, you don't, you don't, you don't go digging around in people's soul with brutality and insensitivity. It needs, it needs care. It needs gentleness. But who of us are equipped to help? And this is where Jesus uses comedy. Because the last person we need to help us is the person who can't see their own spiritual struggles and sin. That person is like someone clunking around with an obvious sin, with an obvious issue in their character, trying to help others without dealing with their own situation. It's comical watching a man with a plank in his own eye trying to deal with the speck of dust in someone else's. And Jesus' scathing point is simply this. The hypocrite is far more aware of others' flaws than their own. And everybody sees it. Everybody sees it. And the challenge is for us to look at this picture and go, my goodness, my goodness, look at me. Look at me. I, I get it. My sins loom large. I am genuinely <clears throat> the worst sinner in the room, in the hands of the greatest savior in the universe. And, we don't, and if we don't see ourselves like that, then sadly we only view this world through the lens of our own perfection. And others can't live up to that standard. Well, how do we know whether that's you or me? Well, we're the plank man if we can't apologize. We're the plank man if we can't back down or if it seems like weakness to do so. We're the plank man if we can't ask for help. 
because we're not seeing anything in our eyes. We're the plank man if we can't say to God, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, I need your help. And I need the help of those around me. We're the plank man if we become so comfortable in our sin that we don't notice it. That's a tough one, isn't it? And let me be honest, as I was writing these things, I was going, oh, do I have to say that? But it's important. We're the plank man if we become so comfortable in our sin that we don't notice it. Or if we rank sin and overlook our own sin because we see a worse sin in others. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Do you see how the comedy kind of unpicks our souls? To a point where we, we find ourselves at, hey, the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit who understand where they are before God, who humbly acknowledge that, hey, I am the worst sinner in the room, genuinely the worst sinner in the room. I've got the biggest plank. My plank is considerably bigger than your speck. And how can I even begin to start digging around in your eye with this massive plank in my eye? How I need Jesus. That's the beginning. That's where we begin to see our faults. And interestingly, it's lovely because that's when we can also start drawing alongside others because we're not judging them. We're not saying I'm considerably holier than thou. We're saying, look, I've got this plank in my eye. But you know, if it's anything as irritating as the speck in your eye, let me tell you how Jesus is dealing with this plank. And may you be blessed as I share that story with you. And that's the truth in love. And the truth in love is something that our culture needs more than anything else too. As I said earlier, we're we're speaking in a way about one another that we're paralyzed with fear and doubt. We're not allowed to say what's right or wrong for fear of being accused of hate speech. But on the other hand, we're allowed to throw grenades flagrantly at each other on social media with the intention to maim and kill. What are we like? We're caught up in this culture of clamming up or blowing up. We don't know truth. Because the truth is so inflammatory. We need help as a culture. We need people who know the truth. We need people who speak the truth. We need people who speak the truth in love. And here's the encouraging thing. Where you see the humility that Jesus encourages us to express here, you will hear the truth spoken in love. And we have to ask ourselves whether we're that kind of person. People who are not cowardly about telling the truth, but who are also not spiteful. People who are courageous enough and honest enough and loving enough to talk about our obvious sin before we begin to talk about the struggles that others have. And one of the most beautiful descriptions of Jesus in the Bible is from Isaiah 12, verse 20. And, and, And it's beautiful. It says this, A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Uh, A a smoldering wick, uh, just to help that that image, you know when you've blown out your your birthday candles and and they're all puffing with smoke, that's a smoldering wick. And and as a kid, I used to love licking my fingers and going, 
because um, I thought it was a really manly thing to do. Um, and that's what it is to snuff out a smoldering wick. But Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take something that's already broken and really break it. I'm not going to see the brokenness in this world and destroy it. I'm not going to take a plant that's, that's really struggling, that's bruised, and then just break it. That's not Jesus. No, Jesus says, let me tell you the truth in love. We are broken. We are bruised. We are smoldering wicks. We're, 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 we're hurting. We're, we're damaged. We're, this world is so, so in need. And Jesus has not come to break it. Jesus has come to care and to love, to heal, to restore, to tell the truth. And to set us free by telling that truth. And for all of us who trust him and follow him, that's what he calls us to do as well. And that's what this world needs, is those who follow him in that. The second thing that Jesus says is be sensitive towards people. It's interesting that verse 6 immediately follows uh, the, 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 the specks and planks. And, and what verse 6 talks about is dogs and pigs. In other words, Jesus wants us to see that, that the world needs the truth in love, but it struggles with the truth in love. He, he wants us to be sensitive towards people. So let me read verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw, throw, throw pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn on you and tear you to pieces. Now, there is another pearl parable in Matthew's gospel. Let me read that. It's Matthew 13, verse 45 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, the pigs and dogs that Jesus had in mind when he tells this parable are domesticated. That's clear enough because he's talking about giving them something to eat rather than a man going out of his way to find wild pigs or dogs to throw things at them. So, so the scenario is a bit like when I was a kid staying with my uncle and aunt on their farm. Their general practice at the dinner table was when you'd finished eating your meal, you'd put your plate on the floor and the dogs and the cats and the chickens would lick, lick, lick up all the scraps that were on the plate. I mean, it certainly saved, up on, saved on the washing up. But the expectation amongst the house pets was that they were entitled to the scraps. And, I, and woe betide if, if you didn't leave enough for them. So I remember one particular dog. Her name was Tessa. And she was grumpy most of the time. But there was a palpable sense of outrage if only a few scraps were left for her. Jesus is saying hungry pets want things that they want. So try to feed an animal with something inappropriate. You're going to be turned upon, particularly in that cult culture when they were slightly less domesticated than now. And I hope you can see this is a bit of a vivid scene for me. Um, I can't imagine what Tessa would have done if I'd left a, 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 a nice string of pearls on the plate for her to lick up. Not just outrage, but I'm sure, I'm sure there would have been some, you know, some come on, let's go outside and I'll, I'll bite your leg off. 
That's the picture that Jesus wants us to have in our minds. The owner puts pearls on the plate, things that are precious. But the animals don't see it. And the pearl that Jesus is talking about is the pearl of great price. The man who who sells everything to get the pearl of great price. That's the gospel. And and you can compare these two, two responses to the gospel. One man just denies himself everything because he sees its value and its worth and its beauty and its joy. And he spends everything to buy it. And the point that Jesus is making in that parable is some people will see the gospel and say it is the most beautiful thing in their universe and I want it and I need it. They see the hand of a holy God and they want that. They see Jesus' sacrifice and it's the most beautiful sacrifice in the universe and they want his forgiveness. But others like the pigs and dogs see Christianity and simply want what they want out of it. They're asking what's in it for me? For some, it's the weekly adrenaline fix of loud music or being moved emotionally. Others, it's a promise of riches. For others, it's a stability of ritual and order. And in the midst of, the, in the midst of it, the pearl has no value. Actually, the truth is, if you try to explain the pearl of the gospel to these people, they will often turn on you. And I know that because I was once there. <laughs> I once treated church as something that, 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 that was there for me to deal with my needs. I didn't see the value of salvation itself. And here's the point. In the same way that, that Tessa wouldn't understand the value of a bunch of pearls on her plate. She just wanted bacon rind. So too in this life, there are people who won't understand the value of the gospel when we share it with them. That's the truth that Jesus wants us to see. And he's wanting us to see that we have to honor the pace of God at work in their lives. If we push, the likelihood is that they turn on us, even though it's not our fault that they act in that way. Jesus is kind of saying, we need two things here. We need sensitivity and we need the gospel. And there's no point in being sensitive without the gospel. There's no point in watering down the gospel. Come to the front if you need Jesus to, 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 to help your emotional needs. No, come to the front if you need forgiveness. If you need a relationship with the living God because you don't have one. Similarly, it's wrong to fail to respect people and to preach at them and not to them. That's truly pearls before swine. That's not sensitivity. And mixed into all of this is Jesus' point that no matter how sensitive we are, fundamentally, humanity hates the truth about Jesus. We can't avoid that. He understood that. Jesus understood that. He understood he was the pearl of great price. He understood what it was to be trampled by animals. He understood what it was to be rejected. But he's still sharing it. The gospel still goes. It's still a beautiful thing. 
And we work with the pace of people around us. We work with how people respond to the gospel. We ask, we seek, we knock. We carefully, 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 carefully and sensitively help people. Can you see where the plank and the speck suddenly come into it too? And that's why the last point that Jesus makes here is that if we want this sensitivity, if we want to share this great pearl of great price without arrogance, well, we start by being sensitive towards God. And that's why Jesus finishes this section of the Sermon on the Mount with a description of what it means to be sensitive towards God. Look with me at verse 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receive. The ones who seeks, finds. And to, the, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And the context of these verses is so important. Jesus is moving from teaching to talking to people about God to talking to God about people. And it seems that this verse actually teaches us to do both. It's almost like there's a juxtaposition of context before and after. That's why it's here. In other words, when we put 7 and 8 in the context of verse 6 about about speaking to others about God, it teaches us to ask carefully, to seek diligently, to find and to knock not barge into people's personal space and tell them to accept Jesus. No, there's a sensitivity about this. There's an there's a, a urgency about this. There's this beautiful balance between speaking the truth and speaking the truth in love to those who need it, to those who have the speck in their eye, to those who need help. Can you see how, how, how beautiful it is? And yet when you put 7 and 8 into the context of verses 9 to 11, you also find that it helps us, it helps show us what it is to approach God as we speak to people about God. It helps us see what it is to speak to God about people. So we ask God, we seek the presence of God, we knock on God's door and we say, Lord Jesus Christ, will you help us as we tell people about Jesus? Will you give us your sensitivity? Will you give us your compassion for this world so that we're not barging into people's space, but we are loving them and sharing that truth in love? And the promise in verse 9 is this, which of you, if his son asks for a bread, will give him a stone? What is God going to do if you ask with love and care and compassion, if you seek with sincere urgency for others to see the beauty of the pearl, if you, uh, if you knock. Well, God's beautiful promise is this. If you're talking to God about people and your heart for people is really for sensitivity and the truth in love, then hey, how is God going to respond? Is he really going to give you a stone if he asks for bread? And if we know, if, we, if, if we're like we are, and you know, we're lovely at Christmas, aren't we? We give our children really good gifts. If we're like that, imagine how good God is in, in terms of how good he is. That's what Jesus is saying. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful overlap, juxtaposition. Verse 7 and 8 in context with 6, talking to people about God. Verse 7 and 8 in context of verse 9 and 11, talking to God about people. God is a good giver. God is a good giver. And this kind of 
prayer, this kind of place where we're at, teaches humility? So is the proud person who goes into an evangelistic situation not praying? For those of us who are uh, in uh, children's ministry and youth ministry, for those of us who are uh, small group leaders, for those of us who who, who have a ministry of of preaching the word to others in this this church, I, I do pray and I do hope and I do challenge you to remember to pray before you go into situations where you're sharing the gospel. Because it's the arrogant person who doesn't. We need God's help as we do that. We can't share the gospel without the work of Christ in the hearts of those who hear. And Jesus is reminding us here to believe and to trust. He's reminding us to remember the power and the importance of prayer about the lost daily. And that's why Jesus finishes on verse 12. And and this is the wonderful thing. Verse 12 is an amazing verse. Let me read it. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. It's proactive. Do you see that? It's not passive. It's proactive. Jesus is saying, do to others what you would have them do to you. And then he says, for this sums up the law and the prophets. It's a powerful summary. Verse 12 is a powerful summary of the whole of the Sermon on the Mount up to this point. In other words, Jesus says in in, in chapter 5, verse verse 10 to 16, he says, be the light on the hill. Why? Because we are aware of the planks in our own eyes. Why? Because we know the truth in love, that great pearl of, of price, which is Jesus Christ. Why? Because we humbly talk to God about people. There's the summary of all that Jesus has been pointing. And as we understand that beautiful summary of what it is to be a a, a lamp on a hill, actually then we can take this initiative because this initiative requires humility. To do to others what you would have them do to you requires a real humility a real honesty, a real gentleness, a real compassion, a real love, a real sensitivity, a real heart, a real, real relationship with God. My brothers and sisters, we cannot do this without immersing ourselves in prayer for the lost, for ourselves, for God's compassion. And that's the beauty of verse 12. It summarizes an initiative that only God can give, that only we can receive as we learn and implement everything that Jesus has talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. So I pray this morning that we would increasingly be those who are quick to speak the truth in love and increasingly those who speak sensitively to those around us. And here's a challenge to be increasingly those who speak sensitively to God so we can genuinely do this, do to others what we would have them do to us so that they might see all that the law and the prophets point to.
a people walking humbly with their God.